patrons, and welcome to the first alternate timeline episode for this season, 2021. Um, I'm so excited for you to be here. If you are new here, hello. This is where I put all of the sort of behind the scenes stuff, things that we ended up cutting from the episode, and other sort of fun secret content. Um, These bonus podcasts are going to make way more sense if you have already heard the full episode, uh, which is maybe obvious, but I don't know, maybe worth saying. Um, Okay, let's get into it. So today we have a bunch of stuff from the cutting room floor, Um, everything from fun poison history to weird facts about poison ivy to this debate about ALC PDC in cycads. Um, But before we get to any of that, um, I want to do a little bit of like spring cleaning stuff uh, or just sort of like logistical stuff that I would like for you to know. Um, And the first is that I just want to take a second to recognize the fact that Flash Forward is now on season seven. Um, That's totally wild. Um, When I started the show, I definitely did not think that it would go on for this long or that it would get successful even or like people would listen to it. Um, So I'm I'm really, uh, that has only happened because of you. So thank you for being here. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, we also hit a thousand patrons recently, which is a number that I, again, like never even considered as a possibility. Um, so to celebrate that, I am planning a little party for you all. Um, and it's going to be fun and kind of weird and a little bit of an experiment. Um, you know, I'm going to test out something on you that I might then take to the broader world. Um, and I am very excited about it. So uh, stay tuned for that. I'm working on it. Um, and that'll happen probably like uh, mid-May, end of May, depending on a bunch of other stuff. Um, okay, another patron-only cool, fun thing is that I had made special patrons-only book plates, which are basically little stickers that I will sign and then send out um, that you can stick on in the Flash Forward book, kind of like you got a signed copy, but like with a sticker version of it. Um, and they will be personalized to you. Um, and I'm working on getting that all set up. Um, I'm waiting for those stickers to come in the mail. And then I'm going to set up a form on Patreon and wrangle sort of all your addresses and names and all that good stuff. But just know that that is also coming. So be on the lookout for that. Um I recently got my books in the mail and they look so good. So you may remember that the original publication date was supposed to be um, the 30th of uh, March, March 30th, which is the first day of the new season um, this past week. That obviously didn't happen. Um, Apparently there have been sort of worldwide shipping delays, not because of the boat that got stuck in the Suez Canal, although that did also create big shipping delays. But um, for my stuff, it was because just the pandemic has totally wreaked havoc on shipping across a ton of industries. Um, And my book was kind of uh, one of the casualties, Um, although I guess casualties is a strong word. It just pushed it back by a couple weeks. So the new publication date is officially April 20th. 420. Very exciting. Um, And so, yeah, but I got my box of books in the mail. I know some of you may get them, you know, officially the pub date is 420 because that was when we could guarantee that everybody could get their books. If you pre-ordered the book, you may get it in the mail sooner um, because there's kind of a weird about the way the shipping is working. Um, So you may get the book soon. It's like a little fun surprise. Um, And I'm just so, it looks so good and I'm really excited for you to see it. All the comics look really amazing and I'm just, I'm just really excited. Um, I'm also of course like terrified that the book is going to like get panned by some big publication like the New York Times or something or worse, the worst thing would be that like just nobody notices it at all and nobody reads it. Um, I will tell you now a story um, about 
book launches that haunts me to this day. So a couple of years ago, I co-edited an anthology of pieces about the future called What Future? And uh, we worked really hard on it and we picked pieces we thought were really good. And um, it was, you know, this collection and um, the publisher organized a book event in San Francisco um, at a bookstore. And uh, there had been sort of like, it had been kind of a weird situation where I actually at that point did not even have a copy of the book because again, shipping was kind of weird. So I showed up to the book event. I had to ask the bookstore to borrow a book to read from. And there were three people there. And two of them were like the partners of either me or the other person who was kind of, I, I invited two of the people who were in the book to come speak at the book event. So it was incredibly embarrassing and painful to sort of sit there and like, there's just was no, no one came, no one came. Um, So I am terrified of that. One saving grace is that all of the book events that we'll be doing are going to be online, um, which makes it easier for people to come and also easier for me to not know if no one's there because, you know, you'll be like you can hide the number of attendees. <laughs> you don't have to just be looking out at like a literally empty room. So um, that is all the all the events will be online. So um, I did send out um, in the newsletter this week a list of events so far, and there will be more. So I'll be adding to them, and so you'll be able to find those on. I'll mostly probably keep it updated on like the social pages for the show, just because like they kind of change. But I'll also have a master list at flashforwardpod.com/book, which is where you can find stuff about the book. Okay, now on to actual stuff from this week's episode. So let's start with just all the stuff that did not make the cut. Buckle up because we have a bunch of it. Um, so, so when I started researching this episode, I found just like a ton of stuff that I wanted to talk about when it comes to like poison and venom and toxins and plants and animals and all of that. So I think let's start with venom. So Dr. Brian Fry, who you heard on the podcast, um, he is quite the personality, as you may have gathered. And we sort of talked for almost two hours. And there was a ton of stuff that he said that I couldn't include. But one thing that he's actually done a lot of work on and that I wanted to share was about this idea that Komodo dragons are venomous or have some sort of bacteria in their mouth. Um that they use to kill things. And this is an idea that you might have heard in a nature documentary, right? Everyone's heard of this idea of Komodo dragons having some icky, horrible Andromeda strain like bacteria in their mouth, which is totally wrong. It has been faked for countless nature documentaries. Um, I've done a lot of field research on Komodo and Rincha Islands. How that whole idea came about was that a guy named Offenberg spent 1979 there I spent the entire year there and then wrote up his notes and published it in a book called in 1980. Very good book, other than the fact that he got the ecology completely wrong. So first off, the water buffaloes are not from there. They were left there 300 years ago by Dutch settlers who, um, as a food source. And then when they went back to Holland, they just left them there. Water buffaloes are native to Southeast Asia on the mainland, um, inhabiting the vast you know, marshes there. So... In the islands of Rincha and Komodo, where the buffalo are, they're restricted actually to just a few valleys. Um, Komodos didn't even evolve on those islands. They only radiated there about a million years ago. Komodos evolved in Australia. There's nothing unique about a Komodo morphologically relative to other Australian monitor lizards, like the lace monitor gets very big. That's the closest living relative. 
There's two extinct versions that are much larger than it, one at five and a half meters, and then there's the iconic seven meter Megalania. So Komodos are only the third biggest to have lived. Um, the two largest ones went extinct when the megafauna went extinct in Australia. Komodos went extinct in Australia as well, but by then they had radiated out um, across into Indonesia, and then they stayed on those islands. So the interaction between them and the water buffalo has been for a very short period of time. Now, Komodos, like any big predator, will have a go at anything. Now, water buffaloes have a 100% escape rate, and that, they and that their natural inclination is to bail into water. Well, the only water available to them on these islands are these stagnant, rocky watering holes, not too much bigger than maybe, you know, twice the size of your average backyard pool. And they are just filled with water buffalo feces. There's no flowing water, except for, you know, during the peak of the monsoon season. The rest of the year, it's just being baked in the tropical heat, and it's, you know, like a hot tub full of sewage. And I remember the first time we went to the islands, um, I could smell them hundreds of meters away. And I checked you know, my legs to make sure I didn't have any of my inevitable wounds on me at the moment. Luckily, I didn't because I was thinking to myself, wow, I wouldn't want to go into the water, that water with a cut. That wouldn't end well. And then I just thought to myself, oh, no, it can't be that easy. And that's what it's been all this long is that there's never been a single documented case of the Komodo that bit a water buffalo and that water buffalo happening to get infected, which does happen on occasion, but it's a rare occasion. There's never been a single encounter of documented where the same Komodo that did the initial bite benefited from that water buffalo dying from septicemia a week and a half later. Like we've tracked them and you know, we, we've you know, seen water buffaloes get bit, get infected and die. And it's only when they're you know, near death that they get scavenged. You know, or, so by then, the original biter is long gone. Um, there's also this weapons-grade cognitive dissonance where, at one hand, Komodos are supposed to be cultivating toxic bacteria in their mouth, yet on the other hand, because they feed on, like any good predator, they feed on rotting corpses in addition to fresh meat, they're supposed to be loaded with all these novel antimicrobial and antibacterial compounds. You can't have it both ways. You can't have them farming bacteria and being resistant to bacteria. You know, it doesn't work that way. So, and the last time I looked in the mouth of a Komodo, the teeth were shiny and white and the gums were pink and healthy. Komodos are actually really fastidious animals. They're remarkably clean. After they feed, they lip lick and rub their head in the leaves for 10 or 15 minutes and get rid of all the gore. They're much cleaner than like a Tasmanian devil, a lion, or your average five-year-old human chomping on his classmate's leg, um, leading to really bad bites. So we first looked at what is actually going on with their mouths. And we teamed up with a microbial specialist from UCLA. He was a specialist on what happens when humans bite humans. Apparently in prisons, biting is very common, results in really, really funky infections. Um, so we teamed up with him as a bacterial specialist. We looked in the mouths of Komodos, including like freshly hatched Komodos. LA Zoo was awesome. They let us sample baby Komodos as they were hatching before they even had a drink of water. So, and then we sampled um, dragons from different collections and showed that the bacteria load is actually lower than most predators, was just reflective of whatever was in the environment. There was no cultivating, but it was fascinating where some zoos refused to participate with us 
Um, and some even took it upon themselves to ring other zoos that tell them to not participate with this because this enchanting fairy tale of bacteria is so entrenched that even though we've completely debunked it, some zoos have not taken down their signs. You know, I will say the LA Zoo and Hawaii Zoo were amazing. They were absolute legends about letting us sample their animals. But we had this battle to get this paper published. So eventually Brian did get this paper published. Um, and yeah, you know, you still hear this bacterial ambush story everywhere. I actually did not realize it was not true um, until I talked to him. Uh, but the story does not end there because it actually gets way more interesting. So Brian thinks that there is something going on with the Komodo dragon and venom. But the real irony is, is that in his book, without realizing it, Offenberg himself actually presented the first evidence for Komodo dragons being venomous, which is not surprising in the sense that they're very closely related to Gila monsters and beaded lizards. They have the same gland. Um, we've shown they put out many of the same toxins with the same bioactivities, that their venom blocks blood clotting and drops blood pressure. And we're just about actually to publish on the first neurotoxins from it. So it's you know, a very complex array. In Offenberg's book, he describes doing things that are, of course, incredibly unethical, unethical, where they tied goats to trees, let Komodo dragons tear into them, chase the dragons off, and then just, you know, in very dry German script, made, no stereotypes, um, made notes about what happened. And they, it's chilling reading, you know, particularly if you put a heavy, thick German accent on while reading it, um, where they describe them very, you know, being unusually quiet rapidly going into shock, behaving like they're anesthetized, you know, even with their guts literally hanging out, they're just standing there, um, bleeding more profusely and for longer than you would expect for the simple mechanical damage, um, you know, that, you know, all of these effects we've subsequently shown to be linked to the venom. So Komodo dragons are venomous, but just not in the way that you may have heard on all those nature documentaries. So that's fun. That's a fun fact. Um, okay, a couple of other small things about poisonous stuff. Um, here's one I just, like, I think is incredibly funny. Poison ivy was once brought back from the, the Americas to Europe because... European explorers thought it was cool. So in 1624, an explorer named John Smith published the first written account of poison ivy. And here's what Smith said about the plant. He said, quote, the poisoned weed is much in shape like our English ivy, but being but touched causeth redness, itching, and lastly blisters. Um, but the, okay, so like, yes, poison ivy, it makes you have these terrible blisters. Um, and, uh, the funny thing about this is that John Smith, this guy, basically goes on to say, like, yeah, sure, you get blisters, but, like, the, the plant doesn't really mean you no harm. It's not, like, a bad plant. Um, and they, in fact, decided that the temporary rash was not enough to brand the plant as poisonous. Um, and people actually brought it back and put it in their gardens and stuff like that. It, like, fancy rich people would put it in their gardens um, in Europe, which is very weird and funny. I'll link to a story about that in the show notes. Um, I also learned that people used to eat arsenic on purpose. Um, they were quote unquote poison eaters uh, and they were found um, in rural Austria in the 19th century. Um, and they were ingesting kind of a combination of different kinds of arsenic produced um, by like roasting arsenic containing materials. Um, 
And the idea was that this arsenic was made them strong and healthy, right? It made them stronger. Um, of course, that is not true, but they were not, in fact, the only people to think this. This idea has kind of a long history. So um, arsenic was widely used as a medical ingredient in the 1800s, and uh, none other than Darwin used a medicine that included it, and people sort of think that maybe his chronic health problems was caused by the arsenic that he was eating. <laughs> so yeah, don't eat arsenic. It's not a good idea. Um, I also promised to tell you the story of Giulia Tofana. So um, we're now in Italy in the 17th century. I know we're jumping around in time here. And uh, Giulia Tofana invented something called aqua Tofana. Um, some accounts argue that it was actually her mother who invented it. We will probably never know. But the point is that aqua Tofana was an arsenic concoction that people could buy, mostly women, and use um, to kill their husbands, basically. That was really, like, mostly what it was used for, is to, for women to kill their husbands. Um, now, I am not here to justify killing someone, but I will note that in the 17th century in Italy, really the only way for a woman to get out of her marriage was if her husband died somehow. <laughs> so that sort of helps explain, perhaps, some of this poisoning. Since its invention, Aquatofana is thought to have killed over 600 people. Um, but again, like the stories about this, like I said on the episode, are um, they're stories, right? As much as they are histories. Um, Aquatofana definitely existed, as did Julia Tofana, but there are some big open questions about a lot of her life and sort of how this actually happened. Um, for example, there are a bunch of different stories told about how she died, like what happened to her later in her life. There are some like completely different versions. So some people say that she died of natural causes in 1651. Um, other people say that she went to a convent and lived there amongst the nuns for many years and made her poison and dispensed it to them, to this sort of like network of nuns and clerics. Um, many accounts say that she was captured or tortured uh, or executed, but um, they cannot agree on the year. So some people say she was killed in 1659, 1709, even as far out as 1730. Um, people have stories about her being um, found at the convent and dragged out and strangled. I mean, like, no one can agree on what happened to her. Um, I mean, she definitely died. She's not alive anymore because <laughs> um, it's been a long time. But um, exactly how that happened is unclear. Um, but we do know that she uh, definitely had a hand or at least supplied the materials to poison a whole lot of people. Okay, let's move on to alcohol, shall we? Um, just as like a small thing that we cut but um, is really interesting, which is sort of this conversation around something called alco-synth, um, synthetic alcohol. And this is largely the brainchild of a scientist named David Nutt, who is very well respected, has worked on Alzheimer's research and LSD research, and has now turned his attention to alcohol. And Nutt believes that alcohol is actually like really bad for us, even in small quantities. Like not, we're not talking about alcoholism here. We're talking about having a beer at dinner every night or whatever it is. Um, he told The Guardian, quote, the industry knows alcohol is a toxic substance. If it were discovered today, it would be illegal as a foodstuff. The safe limit for alcohol, if you apply food standards criteria, would be one glass of wine a year. He has even published work in The Lancet arguing that alcohol is more harmful than heroin or crack. Um, I will link to that in the notes for this episode. But nut is not unrealistic. He is not a nut. Um, but he also recognizes that the idea of like just prohibiting alcohol 
is not going to work. Like we kind of tried that here in the U.S. at one point. Um, and in fact, in a sort of weird note, I, which I found in an article, um, Nut owns a wine bar with his daughter, even though he said that like the safe amount of alcohol is one glass of wine a year. Um, I It's a little bit odd, right? But anyway, um, so Nut is trying to come up with a replacement, right? This synthetic alcohol, Alcosynth. And he's essentially trying to make a substance that could give us kind of the nice mood altering parts of alcohol without the sort of unhealthy, dangerous parts that hurt our bodies and brains. Um, and his team has had some success, right? They have this thing that they call Alcorel, and they are currently trying to get it approved um, in the uh, UK, I believe, and also in the US. Um, and in fact, in one interview, he said that the regulatory stuff is harder than the science stuff, which is actually not that surprising, probably, if you've ever worked on regulation stuff. Um, but anyway, if they succeed in the future, we may not need a vaccine against alcohol addiction at all because maybe we won't drink it anymore because we'll have this better substance. Um, I, I would love to try it. I'm very curious. So we'll see. Um, okay. Last thing from the cutting room floor that I cut, um, I did promise to talk about this whole debate around eating cycads and our brains. So I mentioned in the episode that in the 1980s, a theory gained prominence that eating cycads caused amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, and Parkinsonism dementia complex, or PDC. Um, and this work and this theory has been central to a lot of the efforts trying to stop people from eating psychads. But um, Dr. Mark Bonta, who you heard on the episode, he says that there are some really important reasons to be skeptical of this connection. It was a specific case in Guam where an entire generation of men who, uh, well, after the 1940s, they started getting very high cases of ALS-PDC. So a type of Lou Gehrig's disease, um, so a neuro neurological disorder. And they looked around Guam and they said, well, what could possibly be causing this? And so somehow they latched onto the idea that, well, people in Guam, you know, ate, ate cycads, it must be from the cycads. So some folks, some doctors that have studied that, uh, one of their last names is Steele. I can't recall the other one off the top of my head, but they've worked there for years and they basically dismissed this hypothesis despite the amount of work that went into it. Um, they tried to expand it, said that people would also getting a long-term neurodegenerative disease in uh, somewhere in, in Honshu in Japan and even in New Guinea. There really isn't anything to it. Nowhere else in the world where people eat cycads do they suffer from long-term, you know, Parkinson's-type disease and Alzheimer-type disease. It's all the short-term uh, effects, of which there are a good number. Because cycads do have deadly toxins, and so they said it was the BMAA. So if you look it up, you'll see a lot of BMAA in cycads that this is causing this in Guam. It seems to me that what happened, at very best, people had to eat raw cycads when they were hiding from the Japanese uh, during World War II, and they, were, they, they, they weren't able to cook, cook them, and so it could have been from that, because Guamanians had been eating cycads for hundreds and hundreds of years, and this really hadn't been recorded. Other possibilities was lead paint from, uh, from um, barrels that they were... Uh, storing the cycad seeds in, if it was even from cycads. But again, a lot of people kind of took that as the as as true and never really looked back into it. 
Basically, it's kind of like that Komodo dragon thing, right? The idea was posited and sort of accepted and not really studied or sort of confirmed. Um, And there's actually a lot of evidence that it's not true. Now, you, listener, should probably almost certainly not go out and try and eat a cycad. First of all, they are, in fact, very rare. So if you find one in the wild, it's probably protected. But also because you most likely do not know how to prepare it without it being deadly to you. So the thing to worry about here is not the neurological disorder, but rather the deadly neurotoxins inside the cycad that you almost certainly do not know how to prepare um, or to remove from this before eating it. So don't don't do that. The other thing that um, Mark talked about that we didn't really get into is that in some cultures, cycads are revered, right? And they are this sort of really important cultural uh, touchstone and plant of the culture. In other cultures and other sort of uh, communities, cycads are sort of a symbol of suffering. Um, there are some groups for whom they were driven into the wilderness um, by some sort of military action or something like that. And the only thing they could eat was cycads because it was the only thing that was there. And um, so a lot of people died from them. And so depending on who you ask, people either kind of see them as this lovely, important, um, benevolent, mythical plant or sort of a symbol of the ultimate suffering. So that's kind of an interesting dichotomy um, with these with these plants. Um, in some communities, you cannot own a cycad because they've been there since time immemorial. They cannot be owned, which is also sort of interesting. Okay, that is everything that we cut from the episode. Um, I am gearing up to do some book events. I mentioned the book events and some other speaking stuff. Again, I will put dates for that on the social pages. Um, and you'll get an updated list of everything. So yeah. Um, welcome to season seven. Yay. <laughs> okay. Okay. At the end, we always end with a little secret. Um, it's been a while since I talked to you on these bonus podcasts. So I'm trying to think of what a good secret is in all that time. I'm sure something has happened in which I have a secret to tell you. Okay. So I have become a little bit of a like pandemic cliche person um, in that I have gotten really into houseplants, um, which is like a thing that I think a lot of people have done in the pandemic um, because you are home a lot. Um, but I have no real excuse because I was home a lot before the pandemic. I worked, I've worked from home for years. Um, but I have gotten into plants and recently I got very excited because, so um, I live in Berkeley and there's the uh, Berkeley Botanical Garden and they had a couple of carnivorous plants um, available recently and so I got them and so now I have these two very beautiful carnivorous plants. I have a sundew and I have a pitcher plant and I'm learning how to take care of them and I've learned that they're supposed to get distilled water which I have resisted doing. Um, certain plants like calatheas sometimes people say like oh they need distilled water and I'm always like Ugh, I don't want to have to like do extra weird boiling work for my plants. Um, but the carnivorous plants apparently do need it. And so I am going to be that person soon who makes distilled water at home. And if you look up on the internet how to make distilled water on YouTube, it's like half plant people and then half just like really pseudoscience-y like preppers and like fake health stuff where it's like, oh, there's dangerous stuff in your water that's going to control your mind. So it's a real... It's a real hit and miss situation on YouTube if you look up distilled water, but I am, I'm probably going to do it um, so that my 
carnivorous babies are happy. Um, I will post a little picture of the carnivorous plants at some point, I'm sure. That's everything for this bonus podcast. Um, Thank you so much for being here and for listening. I'm excited for the new season. I hope that you enjoy it. There's some really fun stuff coming. So um, buckle up. We're going to do some futures. Okay. Talk to you all soon.